0: The Biden administration has turned its attention to a major infrastructure plan and is bracing for a long fight in Congress. And on the international front, the Biden administration is scrambling to preserve the dominant position of the United States while other nations move to assert their independence.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity.
0: Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's April 6th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. We can do this with you, but not without you. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smelerik, and our host, Brian Becker. John Preisner is the audio engineer of the show. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. So Brian, what's on our show agenda this week?
1: Well, again, this show in the news, we talk about the big stories the Derek Chauvin trial, the U.S. confrontation with China, Joe Biden's infrastructure program and more. Tomorrow, we're back with Richard Wolf, economist, socialist scholar Richard Wolf on our regular Wednesday segment of The Socialist Program. We're very glad to have Richard back. He had to miss one week. And on Thursday, we're going to have a special guest, Doing a deep dive on the history of the US involvement in Afghanistan. Going back for the past 42 years when the US CIA intervened in Afghanistan to overthrow the socialist, progressive, secular government in Afghanistan at that time, we're going to talk about Afghanistan because right now the US is debating whether or not to stay or to leave Afghanistan. But anyway, we want to be able to give our audience a historical perspective on this. Again, we urge everyone to, if you support the show, if you rely on the show, if you like the show, support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program, become a subscriber. Nicole, let's start. We have a couple issues that I think are really interconnected. There is this big to-do being made by U.S. government officials, by the Pentagon, echoed by the corporate-owned media, that the United States is falling behind China in the race for global supremacy. There's a kind of endless drumbeat that's provided to the American people that we must be preparing for war with China, which seems crazy because, of course, it is. But nonetheless, this is exactly what the United States is doing. And you can see in the way Budgeting is taking place, priorities, contingency planning, war gaming, the whole thing. The U.S. is preparing for a military conflict in the South or East China Sea, a conflict with the People's Republic of China. At the same time, at the very same time, there's all of this moaning about the fact that the U.S., infrastructure is falling apart, that the bridges are literally falling down, that the highways and roads are aging, that the U.S does not have any high-speed trains to speak of, that the United States, which looked like you know the most modern country 70 years ago at the end of World War II, isn't that way at all right now. But the issue of spending and the prioritizing of military spending over domestic infrastructure, it's not accidental. This phenomena, which is all wrapped in the American flag and with the government and politicians encouraging Americans to chant USA, 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 all of it is designed to sort of have people not question why so much of the national budget is going for war, for death and destruction, rather than for things that human beings and society actually desperately needs. And Biden's infrastructure program, which we're going to talk about, it's considered to be so big because it's got a $3 trillion price tag on it. While the US military budget is $1 trillion, that's the real number when you include the Department of Energy and some other Department of Homeland Security elements of the budget, along with the Department of Defense, $1 trillion every year. That means in three years, the Pentagon using money for death and destruction, money that doesn't contribute to anyone's actual well-being, they'll spend that much in the next three years. And there's never a discussion in the media is like, who's going to pay for it? Isn't the Pentagon budget like so big? All of those kind of comments are directed towards any domestic spending, not the war budget. Anyway, let's start with an audio clip. It's from commentator Fareed Zakaria. Esther, you know, we talked about this. Fareed Zakaria is on CNN, correct?
2: Yes. On his show, he does this weekly commentary that it's also a kind of video version of his column in The Washington Post.
1: All right. Let's take a quick listen because Zakaria, who is not a leftist, he's not. Well, anyway, let him speak for himself. But we want to play the audio clip because it speaks directly to the point that I'm making and that we're going to discuss in depth in this show.
3: Consider two contrasting exercises of power. America's F-35 fighter jet program, bedeviled by cost overruns and technical problems, will ultimately cost taxpayers $1.7 trillion, according to a document obtained by Bloomberg. China will likely spend a comparable amount of money on its Belt and Road Initiative, an ambitious set of loans, aid, and financing for infrastructure projects across the world aimed at creating greater interdependence with dozens of countries that are important to Beijing. Which do you think is money better spent? The Pentagon operates in a realm apart from any other government agency. It spends money on a scale and wastes money on a scale that is almost unimaginable. Every government agency is required to audit its accounts. But for decades, the Pentagon simply flouted this law. In 2018, it finally obeyed $400 million for 1,200 auditors to examine its books, yet it still could not get a clean bill of health. As Matt Taibbi notes in a brilliant expose of Pentagon accounting, the auditors were unable to pass the Pentagon or flunk it. They could only offer no opinion, explaining the military's empire of hundreds of acronymic accounting silos was too illogical to penetrate. The Defense Department has failed to pass two more audits.
1: Yeah. So we've talked to Lee Camp, our friend Lee Camp, about this. The U.S. Pentagon couldn't account for, I think, $21 trillion. It flunked its audit the first time it ever had an audit. And then it had another audit, and it didn't pass that one either. Maybe they gave it a a neutral, couldn't say it passed, and didn't say it failed exactly. But again, there's no clear accounting for how all of this money is being spent. Now, the Washington Post, which is a neocon newspaper owned by Jeff Bezos, but even if he didn't own it, the editorial board, I mean, a gross group of war makers, I'd say, the editorial team, but they had an article, it's a series of articles about how the US is, quote, losing its edge in the military confrontation with China. And it's, again, the assumption in the article is that, yes, war is coming with China, but the US is failing to keep up so that China is going to replace the United States as the dominant global power. As a matter of fact, in an unusual part of the article that came out in the Washington Post on April 2nd, one of the headlines was, U.S. risks losing military supremacy, comma, officials say. That's a headline. U.S. risks losing military supremacy, officials say. So that doesn't speak to defense spending for defense. It's not about defense. It's about supremacy. And I thought, wow, there's just such a, whoever wrote that headline made a mistake because it's so brutally honest that all of this talk about Taiwan or Hong Kong or Xinjiang or Tibet, you know, it's not about that. It's about the U.S. wants to maintain military supremacy not defending against China, but supremacy. So I put out a tweet. I don't tweet much, but I took a picture of that headline, U.S. risks losing military supremacy, comma, officials say. And I wrote a little message that said, the U.S. spends five times more than China each year on its military. The U.S. spends more than 10 times more than Russia, but more is never enough for American capitalism and its global empire this money is not for, quote, defense, close quote, but global supremacy. A couple thousand people liked it right away. So I looked to see, well, who's actually paying attention to this? And I think most of the people were people overseas. Most of the people were in Africa or in Asia or in Europe or the Middle East or Latin America, because the Americans are being spoon fed all of this you know, war talk that China is on the march, that China's an evil empire, that China's a genocidal power, that China's oppressing its own people, and that we have to get ready for war. And at the same time, the real issue here is the US risks losing military supremacy. And at the same time, if you listen to Fareed Zakaria's clip that we played, it's clear that the reason that China is advancing over the United States is it's not spending all of its money on the military. I want to play a final clip. And then Esther, I want to toss it to you where I know you're doing a lot of research on the infrastructure program. And in your show on the ground, you also talk a lot about militarism and how the military gobbles up so much of the national treasury. But I want to play this audio clip. It's very short. It's Joe Biden speaking at his first and so far only press conference where he talks again about China. I see stiff competition with China. China has an overall goal, and I don't criticize them for the goal, but they have an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. That's not gonna happen on my watch because the United States is gonna continue to grow and expand. Well, he might be right. It won't happen on his watch, Esther. But the fact of the matter is, China is going to become the dominant economic power in the world. I mean, China's still a lot poorer than the United States in terms of the living standard of the Chinese people. But China's growing. And in maybe 10 years, it will surpass the U.S. economy. By the year 2050, not only China, but India will probably be ahead of the U.S. economy. And the American people are sort of presented, oh, no, we can't not be number one. We have to be number one. But then when you think about what number one is, it's not about how people actually live or how society is maintained or the infrastructure in the United States. Number one always means who is more powerful from a military point of view. Anyway, let's just move over to the discussion of infrastructure, the infrastructure plan of Joe Biden what it means. It's under fierce attack. Again, It's and it's not just the Republicans. The media is also echoing all of these like skepticism and cynicism. How can you possibly spend this much money on infrastructure? Anyway, what's your thought?
2: Right, Brian. So as you mentioned, this public discussion about the outsized spending by the U.S. on the military during this aggression with China is happening at the same time that the Biden administration is announcing his major initiative to invest $2.2 trillion in the US crumbling infrastructure. And here in the US, 11 of the 17 critical areas, such as bridges, hazardous waste, and dams are still given a D grade by the American Society of Civil Engineers. The overall grade has improved somewhat to like C minus, but these critical areas are still in very poor shape. And 2 trillion is a lot of money, but as you mentioned, The Pentagon spends that amount in less than three years. And this $2.2 trillion is actually going to be spread over eight years. So the comparison is there, right? And it's also very modest given the scale of the crisis. And even though it's modest, it's being challenged by Republicans because. Corporations are expected to pay more in taxes, really just restoring some of the huge tax breaks that they've been given in recent decades. And Republicans, many conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin, even want to dispute that elements such as investing in public transportation or clean water or electric cars is really part of infrastructure. And they also want to dispute what I think that we want to refer to as investing in, you know, human infrastructure and human beings as part of the infrastructure. So, anyway, all this debate over what really shouldn't be debated is happening is any analyst can point to the fact that while the United States is spending more than 750 billion dollars a year on its military, three times more than China, you know, we're bogged down in endless wars in the Middle East, maintaining 800 bases and wasting hundreds of millions on failed equipment like you mentioned in that clip, the F-35 airplane, you know, China has been investing its public treasure in infrastructure inside its country and infrastructure around the globe as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. And if you include raising 680 million people out of poverty, then you could say that China's effort also includes investing in its people, you know, as part of the infrastructure investment. So even people in mainstream media, like we played Fareed Zakaria, he's not a socialist that I know of. And, you know, his commentary makes it clear, as we stressed before, that the threat that China supposedly poses is economic. And when, you know, Anthony Blinken talks about China violating norms, the way he's apt to say recently, they really mean that the norm of U.S. hegemony. And you know, when you really look at this whole debate, it's it's happening at this critical moment. You know, in the middle of a pandemic and economic collapse, when more and more American people are informing themselves and being educated about the outsized influence of corporations, their failure to support the very infrastructure that has allowed them to grow. And I think just this week there was a report about fifty-five U.S. corporate giants paying zero in federal taxes in twenty twenty, <laughs> and I think one of those corporations is Nike, for example. So Senator Bernie Sanders put out a tweet or a post or something that said, if you paid $120 for a pair of Nike Air Force One shoes, you paid more to Nike than it paid in federal income taxes over the past three years. So, you know, this is a time when people are being educated about you know the lopsided nature of what's happening in this country and the sunrise movement for example plans dozens of actions this week to demand a jobs guarantee and 10 trillion dollars for an infrastructure plan rather than this 2.2 trillion Yeah, that's
4: very interesting. And a huge question on everybody's mind is, how is this thing going to pass? Will this thing pass? Will the infrastructure plan be able to receive the stamp of approval from both houses of Congress, which are both controlled by the Democrats, but by quite narrow margins? So, you know, there's lots of ways to put political pressure on intransigent politicians. Uh, For instance, there could be a massive demonstration in Washington, D.C. I mean, I think if a mass march was called to support, you know, a sweeping infrastructure overhaul or a $15 an hour minimum wage or universal pre-K and free community college education, you know, things that the Biden administration Ostensibly supports, and if the president of the United States was supporting them, I bet hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people would show up. But that's considered to be out of bounds in sort of respectable ruling class politics in the United States. And so the Biden administration is pursuing a strategy, and I think this is a long term strategy, in other words, one that goes beyond just this infrastructure proposal. Of forming an alliance with who they identify as the moderate Republicans, the centrist Republicans, people like, say, Mitt Romney or Susan Collins. And so, because of that, they have imposed this ridiculous restriction on themselves where they need not just 50% plus one, you know, in the case of the Senate, 51 votes, they actually need to get 60 votes in the Senate in order to proceed to a vote on anything. It's a practice called the filibuster or a provision called the filibuster. And so that means if they wanna pass something using a simple majority vote, they have to go through a process called budget reconciliation. But that too is something that's not really favored by the Biden administration. Because again, this would be considered to be essentially insulting to the right-wing Republican senators the so-called moderates, the centrists by the standards of U.S. politics, who the Biden administration desperately wants to court and form an alliance with. And so this is, I think, the maneuver that they have in mind. Biden broke up his infrastructure proposal into two parts. One is sort of more traditionally what one would expect from a bill like this, you know, has a lot about bridges and roads and housing. And so that's sort of what's getting the main attention right now in the media. That's kind of the centerpiece. And then there's a second infrastructure bill that could also be worth, you know, 1 trillion plus dollars that contains essentially the most progressive measures that Biden's proposing. So that's universal pre-K, free community college. These are sort of the things that I think many, many progressive people have been fighting for for a long time, but for some reason they're in a separate bill. They're being presented in the media as one proposal, but there's two bills. And I can think of really no reason for that other than that the Biden administration views these more progressive proposals shoved into the second bill as essentially a bargaining chip that they can abandon or modify or sort of let sit on the back burner as part of a negotiation with some of these Republicans that Biden wants to be best friends with in order to pass the initial infrastructure bill, you know, phase one of the bill with 60 votes in the Senate.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Walter. One thing that we have to recognize is that Biden is planning, as you said, to capitulate, and he's going to use part of this infrastructure plan as a bargaining chip. But if we rely on Biden, if we rely on the Democrats, or even if we think we can rely on the small number of more liberal members of Congress like the squad, if we think that we can wait and see if they do the right thing, we can know in advance that they are not going to do the right thing. Because we know from history that they always capitulate to the right wing, because they are the right wing, because they're not the far, far right, perhaps, but they're addicted and connected to and depend on the support from a right wing system. This right wing system is called Wall Street capitalism. It's called the US capitalist system. It's called the military-industrial complex. So what we can do and what we need to do is have a mass movement, as you're saying. Like the politicians won't call the people to Washington, but there needs to be and progressive grassroots socialist organizations and labor in particular needs to be strategizing right now to bring hundreds of thousands or even millions of people into the streets. And on that basis, some of these things can happen. That's how unemployment insurance was achieved in 1935. That's how social security was achieved. That's how the Civil Rights Act was passed. That's how the Voting Rights Act was passed. That's how Medicare was passed. Anyway, two years ago, Nicole, Remember that bridge in Tennessee fell down? It broke apart? There was a study done at that time. There are more than 47,000, quote, structurally deficient, close quote, bridges in the United States. That report notes that deficient bridges are crossed some 178 million times a day. And some of the most notable bridges deemed deficient in the report include New York's Brooklyn Bridge, which opened when? 1883. Memorial Bridge right here connecting Washington, D.C. to Arlington across the Potomac. The San Mateo Hayward Bridge, which spans California's San Francisco Bay, and Florida's Pensacola Bay Bridge, which is known among locals as the Three Mile Bridge. I mean, you would think that this would be a top priority. But guess what? It doesn't have easy super profits attached to it, even though it might still because the way America does business. But that's why Wall Street would rather just get lots of money from the US government through quantitative easing and loan guarantees and bailouts so that they can you know, keep playing the casino called the stock market.
0: Right. I mean, I think that's such a good point that you all are making. And, you know, the United States has done this before. They've invested in the kind of infrastructure that's necessary and use that as a jobs program. You know, this happened with the civilian corps many decades ago, but it could happen again. This could be something that could really help pull this country out of the economic you know, crisis that it's in. But instead, that's not what's happening. There's not enough money being put toward these things, being put toward repairing bridges, literally breaking down. And Brian, you were just talking a moment ago about the movement that's necessary that, you know, when people come into the streets in these large numbers, that's what's going to make these changes. And that's the case. And something else that's going on on the news right now in actually securing this prosecution and trial for George Floyd's murder, Derek Chauvin is only on trial because there were so many people in the streets, millions around the country saying, this is clear. We've seen the video. We've seen the evidence. He must be charged with murder and he must go on trial. So this is the second week of his trial. You know, in watching a lot of this footage and in reading some of the takeaways, I mean, the defense is really trying to say that it was his own fault, that he was on fentanyl and clearly would have died regardless of Chauvin's behavior, regardless of Chauvin shoving him on the street and thrusting his knee into his neck, you know, constricting his airway, that, you know, he would have died regardless, that he was about to overdose, which, A, I mean, it just seems too easy. Like, we've all watched the video. We know what happened. But, you know, we were talking in preparation for the show, and I decided to go back and watch Thomas Lane's body cam footage. Thomas Lane It was one of the cops who was very new on the job was like four days in or something, but he was the one who actually approached George Floyd first. He comes up to the car and you can hear Floyd is like very clearly surprised that there's someone like rapping on his window with a nightstick and he's clearly like panicked already, which makes sense. You've got a cop, you know, envision yourself sitting in a car, somebody coming up to your car, a cop coming up to your car and rapping on the window. You're like, oh, like, what did I do wrong? Oh, God, what's going to happen? So he says, put your hands up. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. And Floyd immediately, y'all will remember seeing this footage. He immediately starts apologizing. He says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I thought about playing this clip, but it's just so painful to listen to. He says, I'm sorry. And within 10 seconds, because he hasn't put both his hands on the wheel, he's panicked. He's moving around. He's saying, I'm sorry. I didn't, what did I do? I didn't do anything, Mr. Officer. I didn't do anything. He says, don't shoot me. Within moments, 10 seconds, Thomas Lane has pulled his gun out and has his gun in George Floyd's face. And the things Floyd are saying are essentially, "Don't shoot me. I've been shot before. This happened to me before. Don't shoot me. Look me in the eyes. Don't shoot me." He says, "I have anxiety. He says, "My mom just died." He, you know, he's clearly distressed. It's just It's such a stark reminder of how this all started in the first place. This was over a counterfeit $20 bill, and now this is in a trial where he's being blamed for his own death. I mean, it's truly disgusting. It's the most disgusting thing I can think of. I'm going to play a clip from the trial yesterday, from Monday's trial. And this is police chief Madaria Arredondo. He's the police chief in Minneapolis. He was on the job right around when this happened. And he immediately fired these four officers because of all of the protests that had happened. So he's definitely trying to paint himself as like, we are different. You know, Chauvin is the bad guy. But here's Arredondo yesterday in the trial.
5: Once Mr. Floyd had stopped resisting, and certainly once he was um, uh, in distress and trying to verbalize that, um, that that should have stopped. Um, There's there's an initial reasonableness in trying to just get him under control in the first few seconds, but but uh, once there was no longer any resistance, and clearly when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, it's not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values.
0: Esther, I mean, again, I was watching this footage for way too long earlier today, and you know, even watching the footage of them trying to get him into the squad car, he's saying over and over, I can't breathe, I'm claustrophobic, I'm claustrophobic. He's clearly panicking, but he's not resisting arrest. He's saying, he even tries to count himself into the car. He's like, all right, I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to get in, I'm going to get in. He's trying to talk himself into doing it, Three, two. One, he's trying to talk himself into doing it. I mean, even what this police chief says, it's not enough. I mean, why was he on the ground in the first place? Why was he being even arrested and a gun in his face in the first place?
2: Right, right, Nicole. And it is hard to watch. But when I do watch it, I'm reminded that for a lot of people, you know, in the black community and over police communities around the country, it is known that, you know, being in the back of a police car or squad car or this SUV that they had there is not a safe place and there's conversation about people getting into the back of a police car and you know they're never seen alive again so George Floyd had every reason to be freaked out and not even interested in going into that car i think one of the bystanders actually who testified later in the trial last week that you know he had a friend who got into a police car and didn't get out. So the testimony last week and yesterday revealed more damning video and these types of witness statements. So you already mentioned how George Floyd was arrested at gunpoint. We also learned that Chauvin lied to his boss about the fact that he kneeled on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. And he was very nonchalant after he knew that George Floyd was dead. This is all captured on video and the jury jury heard this. There was also repeated testimony from fellow police officers, emergency workers, an emergency room doctor, you know, culminating in that testimony you just played uh, from the Minneapolis police chief, Arundondo. What's also interesting is that the defense, in addition to blaming Floyd for his own death, they try to act like the police chief doesn't know What he's talking about, you know? And he even implied that Chauvin had been kneeling on Floyd's shoulder and, you know, pointed to body cam video that he was kneeling on Floyd's shoulder rather than his neck. But the particular moment that he pointed to was after paramedics had arrived and were about to put George Floyd on the gurney, when by all appearances, it looks like George Floyd is already dead. So, Responding to what you were raising earlier about, you know, why this even happened, I wanted to mention that I spoke to Jonathan Smith, executive director of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs last week for On the Ground. And, you know, he's the lawyer who was the lead author of that report we mentioned in February about the death of Elijah McLean. And Elijah is the 23-year-old musician and massage therapist. Who was tackled and choked by Aurora, Colorado police in 2019 before these paramedics injected him with the sedative ketamine? And we know that Elijah suffered a massive heart attack on the way to the hospital where he was declared brain dead and then taken off life support six days later. And that report concluded that there was no reason for the police officers to even stop, less more violently frisk retain or put Elijah in a chokehold. And similarly, Jonathan Smith is saying that there's no reason that George Floyd needed to be approached at gunpoint, arrested, put down on the ground, and that this could have been handled with a basic summons or like a ticket where he would have to answer these charges that he allegedly passed this counterfeit bill. Anyway, I just thought that, you know, it was just very interesting to speak to someone who's looked at these cases. And he talked about how the police are taught to control the situation. In the process of controlling the situation, they often escalate a situation that needs to be de-escalated. And, you know, they want to force someone to comply, you know, but sometimes forcing them to comply can be dangerous. And that also escalates a situation that needs to be de-escalated.
0: Right. That's exactly what I was thinking as to this whole, you know, watching this footage again. You know, they want him to get in the squad car. He's like, I'm trying, but like this is very, very hard. And they have no patience for that because they're not here to serve. They're not here to help. It's very evident that they are here to try to lock this guy up. And when you look at Minnesota law, Minnesota Code Chapter 609-624, counterfeiting of currency, which is what he was accused of, which, you know, they hadn't proven yet, obviously, it's a misdemeanor it was up to $1000 of currency being counterfeited as a misdemeanor we're talking about a $20 bill that may have been fake $20 bill for a pack of cigarettes for 5 to 10 bucks we're talking about i mean and he's killed over this so i mean
2: and it's not even clear that he knew it was a counterfeit bill i mean right the trial hasn't gotten into that yet but it's not even clear because he received this currency you know from a friend or The other people in the car. And he was just in there to buy some cigarettes or whatever. So it's not even clear that he even knew this was a counterfeit bill. Exactly.
1: I want to just jump in real quick and make the point here that, you know, this is what happens to the working class. This is what happens to the black community. This is what America's police state is all about. And, you know, again, just think of all the corruption, all of the greed, all of the theft that happens on Wall Street. Every large American bank has been convicted of drug laundering, hundreds of billions of dollars, and not one banker has ever gone to jail for it. And here you have somebody who's accused. He was only accused. He's presumed to be innocent, not guilty, of sharing a $20 counterfeit bill, and he's dead. And even now, even this discussion is like, what did George Floyd do? Well, what George Floyd actually did was George Floyd was born... As a working class African American person in America, really that's his crime from the point of view of the police in America. I wanna just say one other quick thing. I think it's so important, the point that both of you are making. How the police are trained actually does make a difference. You know, back in 2001, 2002, 2003, whenever we had an anti-war demonstration or an anti-globalization demonstration that demonstration would always be attacked any large scale demonstration in washington dc was physically assaulted at some point and people were arrested and people were beaten that happened every time and then there was a lawsuit filed by the partnership for civil justice fund on behalf of 700 of us who were arrested in april 2000 and then another very large mass arrest with kettling involved in 2002 And part of the outcome of the lawsuit was that the way the police had to handle protest demonstrations in Washington, D.C. had to be reorganized. It had to be redone and the police had to be retrained. And the city council, as a consequence of these lawsuits, actually passed a law in 2005 that insisted that the police be retrained. And if you have a demonstration in Esther, Walter, Nicole, you all know that In general, in Washington, D.C., if people block an intersection right now, there's not a mass attack by the police. You would be attacked by the police in 2001, 2002, 2000, even if you were walking on the sidewalk, because the police had to be retrained after the city paid $23 million in lawsuits. And as a consequence instead of treating, like as a matter of course, all protests as enemy combatants that you had to suppress and defeat, the MPD changed. Now, it doesn't mean they're not repressive. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of other terrible things that happen. But how the police are trained is a decision that's made by policymakers. And the decision here, not just here in Minneapolis, but all over the country, is the police are trained to be feared and intimidated by the policed communities, meaning this is a form of social control, especially against black America. And it's been this way for centuries. And this is the outcome that the capitalist establishment actually wants.
0: Brian, I think that's a really great point. I'm glad you put it that way. Brazil is another country that deals with really horrendous racist policing, really horrendous anti-progressive governance I think people are familiar with Jair Bolsonaro, the president, who's the president of Brazil and, you know, really just such a disgusting and very, very vitriolic, very right wing leader who is extremely repressive against people's movements. Walter, there's some new important updates out of Brazil about this horrendous government. Can you update us on what's going on?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think these are extremely important developments in Brazil, very troubling, pretends, a period of perhaps intense struggle going forward. So the extreme right-wing government of Bolsonaro, you know, some would say the fascist government of Bolsonaro, is in a conflict now, a very serious conflict with the military, which up until this point had been a very close ally of his regime. So the Bolsonaro government had a cabinet shakeup last week. Several top ministers were fired. There's a complete catastrophe going on in the country with regards to the coronavirus crisis. Over 3000 people are dying every day in Brazil. That's, you know, worse than it was at the worst point of the pandemic in the United States and the population here is much bigger. And so there's this atmosphere of political crisis. And one of the ministers that got fired in this cabinet shakeup was the minister of defense, who is a general himself. And he was sort of seen as the military's man inside of the Bolsonaro government. So Bolsonaro fired him. And that Cause a crisis in the top leadership of the armed forces. And so for the first time in Brazil's history, the leaders of all three branches of the Brazilian armed forces tendered their resignation as a form of protest against the Bolsonaro government. Now, that led to a cascade of other resignations across the Brazilian establishment. For instance, a lot of the top leadership of the Brazilian central bank was then replaced. And it's unclear, of course, exactly what's going on, but there's a lot of speculation that this may be a maneuver by Bolsonaro to essentially end what democracy remains in Brazil, to remain in power beyond the end of his term in 2022, A very popular progressive former president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, is expected to run for president or is at least actively considering running for president. His legal rights had been taken away, but they were restored. And it seems like the left has a good chance now of defeating Bolsonaro. And so the fear is that he's putting in place a more compliant leadership in the top ranks of the armed forces who would go along with a plan at some point down the road to essentially have a coup and extend his rule of the country indefinitely rather than subject himself to another democratic election in which he faces the prospect of losing to the left. So this is an extremely important story to watch, I think, for everybody who is an opponent of the far right, who is an opponent of fascism and a believer in the rights of working people in progress.
0: Thanks for that, Walter. Brian, we're running short on time, but there's a really important international story that I know we want to talk about. Can you just bring us up to date on what's going on with the Iran nuclear deal or joint comprehensive plan of action?
1: Yes. Today, the US and Iran are taking part in indirect talks in Vienna and involve all of the signatories to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal that was signed in 2015, which the quid pro quo was that Iran would not produce enriched uranium beyond 3%, that Iran would allow nuclear inspectors to come into the country. In exchange, the United States and the other signatories would lift sanctions that the U.S. had required or imposed on Iran earlier that deprived Iranian people of you know, things they need to live. And then Trump came in in 2017 and immediately said it was the worst deal ever, ripped it up, left and threaten sanctions against any country, including the other signatories, if they continue to do trade with Iran. So now Biden has said, we want to come back into the nuclear arms deal. Iran obviously is producing enriched uranium at a much, much higher level. If it wanted to, it could easily develop several nuclear bombs right away or within a very short amount of time. So the U.S. wants to bring Iran back to the table. The other signatories, which include Britain, France, Germany, and Russia, also want the deal back. They want to be able to have normal relations with Iran. And Iran is saying, look, we're willing to talk, but we're not going to talk directly with the United States. So they're at the meetings in Vienna, but they are not going to participate in any meeting with the United States because they're insisting that the United States end the sanctions on Iran right now. In other words, that the United States can end the impasse by going back and living up to its side of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which the United States did not do, didn't do it fully under Obama, and then completely eviscerated the agreement under Trump. So the deputy foreign minister who's in Vienna right now said, the U.S. will not attend any meeting in which Iran is present. So there's a diplomatic dance going on. Iran want sanctions to be lifted, but it's not going to come in and say, as Biden was insisting, come back into the agreement, stop enriching uranium at 20%, and then we will start to lift sanctions. Iran is saying, no, you go first, you lift the sanctions, then we can talk. So they're at the meetings, but they're not going to be in the room with the United States. So obviously China, Germany, Britain, France, and Russia are trying to get things back on track. And just finally, Nicole, Just two weeks ago, China and Iran signed a $400 billion investment agreement whereby China would invest in Iranian infrastructure. There's a military side of the agreement. It's a 25-year-long commitment for Iran and China to trade and to do economic and military business with each other. That obviously shows that the United States' ability to impose unilateral domination over Iran is starting to slip away.
0: Well, we'll obviously keep following the story. Incredibly important, you know, essentially to everyone in the world, all of the workers all over the world who are influenced by this and who are affected by the U.S. trying to exert its power over everyone else. Walter, before we close the show, you're the editor of Liberation News. We want to have you tell us about three of the biggest stories on Liberation News this week.
4: Yeah. So as always, I really encourage everybody to sign up for our newsletter. It comes out every Monday morning. You'll get the highlights from Liberation News' coverage of international, local, and national developments if you want to sign up for it. Go to liberationnews.org. At the very top, you'll see sign up for Liberation's newsletter. Yeah, several really important stories I think that we've covered over the past week. One you'll see on there, it's titled Chaos of Capitalist Production." 15 million vaccine doses ruined. And this talks about a disaster in the mass production of coronavirus vaccines. There was a subcontractor in Baltimore that was producing two different types of the vaccine. And because of essentially the profit motive, because of the race to the bottom to cut corners, cut costs and do things in essentially the most profitable way, they can. The company failed to take adequate precautions and ended up mixing up the chemicals from the two different types of vaccines. And so that led to 15 million doses being ruined. An important question that this article asks is, why were there even two vaccines in the first place? I mean, why was every different individually profit-motivated corporation producing their own vaccine, you know, having their own research effort rather than pooling all of their resources and developing and mass producing a single vaccine that could be distributed in an equitable way across the population, right? I mean, that's what would be possible in a centralized planned economy. Another important local report here, this actually comes from several different cities throughout California. Statewide Day of Action Demands Freedom for Longest Held Political Prisoner. In the U.S., this is about Cinque McGee. He is the longest-held political prisoner in the United States. He just marked his 82nd birthday, and he's been unjustly imprisoned for 58 years. You can find out more about Cinque McGee. Check out this article. And finally, there is an article that was published about a week ago titled, Life in Prison, New York Trial Exposes Alliance Between U.S. Government, Right-Wing Drug kingpin. This is about the brother of the president of Honduras. Honduras is ruled by a right-wing regime, and it's been that way since the U.S. sponsored a military coup in 2009. The current president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, his brother, Tony Hernandez, was sentenced to life in prison for running a massive international drug trafficking ring. And The president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, he was totally part of it. I mean, all of the evidence, all of the charging documents in the case makes it clear that he was part of the drug trafficking conspiracy. And yet he remains a valued U.S. ally and a bulwark against the left in Latin America. Check out that article as well.
0: Definitely encourage all listeners to go and subscribe on liberationnews.org. We've got two other short and very important things to touch on before we close out today. Esther, really horrific, really awful death of a very important union leader happened just right here in Washington, D.C. on this past Sunday.
2: Absolutely. So many of us in D.C. and just really around the country are just shocked at the sudden death of Elizabeth Davis, president of the Washington Teachers Union. And we received notification on Monday of her passing. And you know, just in recent months, you know, she was such a champion for standing up for teachers who have many politicians and journalists have been trying to herd teachers back into classrooms when it was not really clear that those classrooms were safe. And, you know, that's just one example of her constant championing for the rights of teachers and all working people. And she will be so missed. And, It's such a big loss and such a hurtful loss for those of us who have felt like we were in the trenches with her fighting for not just for teachers, but for students and for all students, regardless of their income, regardless of their neighborhood, to have a quality education. And she'll be missed. And she's very much loved and she'll be missed.
1: Thank you, Esther, for that. And Liz Davis, you know, she was a public school teacher for decades, but she was also a public school student when she was a kid. And even as a kid, she was a leader in the struggle for civil rights in Washington, D.C. as a teenager. And she led struggles for girls' rights in the Washington public school system. So her involvement has gone on for decades and decades, a huge loss for people here in Washington, of course, for her family, but for the larger community.
2: Yeah. And this is the second loss of a leader in the teachers' union movement just a few weeks ago, we mentioned the loss of Karen Lewis in Chicago. So we just want to lift up and honor these leaders who are fighting not just for teachers, but for our communities.
0: Absolutely. Incredibly important. Thank you, Esther, for those words. And Brian, Brian, we've actually got one bit of good news that we want to talk about before we close out today's show. So I'll hand it over to you to announce a very exciting, very great, partial victory in Denver before you close out today's show.
1: Big victory, partial victory, but a big victory. We say the power is in the people. And as we've said on this show, the only reason Derek Chauvin is even on trial is because of the power of the people, the mobilization. When the police cracked down and arrested the leaders of massive peaceful protests in Aurora, Denver, who were demanding justice for the killing of Elijah McLean, they were the ones who were arrested. They were charged with felonies. We've talked about this over and over again. Joel Northam, Lillian House, Eliza Lucero, Terrence Roberts, facing up to a half a century in prison. And there is, of course, a response, the National Committee for Justice in Denver, which you can go to that website, watch the documentary about this amazing case, denverdefense.org. Well, two weeks ago, we talked about Judge Leroy Kirby dismissed, dropped. The outrageous kidnapping charge in a preliminary hearing. Well, here's new news: on Sunday, April 4th, the 18th Judicial District Attorney's Office of John Kellner moved to dismiss several major charges against Terrence Roberts, Joel Northam, and Lillian House. All 16 felony counts in Arapaho County. They were charged in both Adams County and Arapaho County. All 16 felony counts in Arapaho County and several misdemeanor charges against these peaceful protest leaders have been thrown out. The dismissal, I'm reading from their website, the dismissal of a large number of charges, including all felonies in Arapahoe County, is a significant step in the right direction, showing an acknowledgement from District Attorney John Kellner's office that this case is unjustified. And then it goes on to talk about they are still facing serious charges in Adams County and serious misdemeanors also in Arapaho County, but we see the trajectory. Tens of thousands of people signed the petition. Uh, Defense committees were set up all around the country. Organizations all around the world came together. There's an amazing legal team that has been assembled. They are pushing this political prosecution and political persecution back. Great victory for our friends, our comrades, those organizers in Denver. But again, it's a struggle that's not over. Go to denverdefense.org. Well, Walter, Esther, Nicole, that's all the time we have for today. We were able to cover a number of big stories. Again, we urge our audience, stay with us the rest of the week. We're gonna be talking with Professor Richard Wolf tomorrow about the big stories in the economy. And on Thursday, a special segment on the U.S. involvement or intervention in Afghanistan. So stay with us all week.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.